card-carrying basing at this point. Ben Alomar, Director of Sports Analytics at ESPN. He stood next to Big Poppy be like, he's just one of us, man. <laughs> That's kind of a big deal and shows you a lot about the randomness of sports. Rick Peterson, longtime pitching coach for the major leagues. This is Warden Moneyball's post-game podcast. Welcome to the Wharton Moneyball post-game podcast, your crash course in the major themes from our two-hour program of Wharton Moneyball, which you can hear live on Wednesdays in the morning at 8 a.m. until 10 a.m. Eastern Time. I'm your host of the post-game podcast, Professor Adi Weiner. I'm also the co-host and collaborator and professor of statistics in the Wharton School of Business. And during our show on Wednesdays, I collaborate with Eric Bradlow, Cade Massey, and Shane Jensen. This past week, we had in the studio Cade and Eric, and we had two great guests. We had Lionel Page, a professor of economics and the head of the Queensland Behavioral Economics Group in the School of Economics. And he was talking about momentum and a really interesting study he recently published, which is fairly convincing evidence that there is momentum, at least in tennis. And we also spoke to the terrific Bill Connolly, who um, writes on NCAA football and basketball and is also a tennis contributor for SB Nation. And he's author of a new book called The 50 Best College Football Teams of All Time. This was a topic which basically fired up Cade Massey, who loves college football more than anything else. So let's go to our first clip, which is a discussion among the three of us about Westbrook and his prospects for being the MVP. Even if Westbrook wins the MVP, and it's kind of hard to deny him the MVP. There are many folks who think he's never going to be a championship player because of the style with which he plays. So this is the counterfactual that makes it hard to do. So uh, for those people that have watched the OKC Houston series, in every game, Russell Westbrook in the fourth quarter basically you know, got tired. Humans get tired. It, when, the, when the pressure's on, he's just extremely fatigued. Put him on Cleveland. That's the counterfactual. Does he change his style? Or does he play the same Russell Westbrook and not get the other guys involved? That's hard to know. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I mean, the only thing we could do is look back last year when he had Kevin Durant on his team. Mm-hmm. What's, when they were up 3-1 against Golden State, you guys may not remember the game. I do remember the game well. Yeah. It was the old Russell Westbrook yeah, sure. trying to win it himself. In the fourth quarter, in the, the last four or five minutes. Last four or five minutes, yeah. and they lost every game. So my belief is, no, he's not as great as LeBron. And mm-hmm. LeBron will tell you, LeBron is happy. You hear him say this all the time. He's more than happy for his teammates to take the game-winning shot as opposed but, to him. But I do like what you're saying on the, on the counterfactual. so difficult to— It's become, tough. It's impossible, essentially. But because, for example, Harden is a different player than I thought he ever could be. Yes. So Westbrook, I mean, what alternative does he really have? Who's he going to—last year with Durant, he could have played it a little differently. This year, he doesn't have an alternative. So you put Harden down in Houston, surrounded by some guys who might get some things done, and he might, and he becomes a little more generous. Turns out, I think it turns. I think it comes to one fact, which is if you think you're as great as you are, and you think you're the only one that can get it done, you're not going to pass the ball when it's crucial. You're just not. <laughs> and Westbrook thinks he's the greatest. Maybe he is, and he thinks that they have the best chance to win if he shoots, no matter what. So this was a knock on. Kobe, he had that vibe at the end of the games. This was maybe an early knock on Jordan, but not that much. And Jordan, of course, famously, 
you know, dished to Kerr against the Cavs, was it? And I mean, he he took the last shot against the Jazz in you know his last one, I think, but in, in about the third one or something against Cleveland, he fed Kerr for the championship Look, winning shot. Bill Cartwright, Bill Wennington, Steve Kerr, those guys all took game winning shots, not Michael Jordan, and that's mm-hmm. what Jordan did. Well, that's what makes someone spectacular. I mean, essentially what you're saying is it's actually two pieces. It's one that's the group that you have around you. And second, to recognize that in order to be great in basketball, you have to make the others great. Well, I couldn't have said it better there myself to end it. Oh, that was me. Um, So that was a really interesting conversation with Cade and Eric discussing the various shortcomings between Russell Westbrook, uh, James Harden, um, towards the end, a little bit of discussion of Kobe Bryant and potentially, well, what does this mean for someone who's truly great? And uh, we see spectacular numbers coming from Westbrook. I mean, it's off the charts, crazy numbers. But basketball is a game where only one person can have the ball at a time. So, yes, one person can run up big numbers, but what is that at the expense of? And that's what makes a, a diff- difficult statistical analysis because you have to try to account for that and uh, and that's why you don't always see tremendous players like like uh, LeBron James leading all the categories because basketball is is at the end of the day a team sport. So let's uh, shift gears and now let's talk a bit about our behavioral experiments in tennis with Lionel Page. Remember, te- he was using tennis as a tool to sc- to, to make in conclusions about behavior, um, and in particular what motivates behavior. So let's go to our clip. So a lot of people might argue maybe sports is the worst place to do it because of all the complex interactions between players. Is that maybe why you chose tennis, which is more of an individual sport? Like, how do you think about interactions? And is that possibly, and maybe you could tell us a little about what you've done in tennis. Yeah. So look, you're right. Like, I mean, nothing is perfect. Like, and, and in team sports in particular, you have team sports, you have like very complex dynamics. So it's not like sports, you know, one, one difficulty when you go out there and that you don't build the experiment in the lab is that you don't control the situation. So you have to take the situation as it exists with all its complexity. And if we wanted to test theories, we, we, may, we, we would certainly prefer to build more simple rules of the games and, uh, than, what the game, than how sports typically are designed. But we, have to, we have to take the, the rules as they are. So, so what, what I do is I try to look out there in all the sports that exist and try to identify some very specific situations where the rules are clear enough that you can you can say, okay, in this specific situation, uh, the theory has clear predictions and you can retrieve enough data from real-world sports to test the theory. And so tennis in that aspect is very interesting because uh, in some ways it's simpler than other games. Like, as you say, it's not, it's not a team sport, so you don't have problems of coordination or between players and also the rules uh, how the games progress even if it's not trivial uh, we can get a good grasp of it with uh, economic theory so that was a a brief discussion of why tennis is an attractive sport to test behavioral economic theories potentially because you can control for many complex variables. You could really never do this easily in basketball. Just as a preamble to what's coming up, um, the discussions of, of momentum in sports are have been ongoing. Um, the idea that there are certain players that they get hot and they continue to stay hot is a theory that almost anyone who plays sports subscribes to. 
the countervailing argument to that is, although it feels like you get hot, streaks are natural occurrences in random phenomena. So if there is no such thing as hotness, you're still going to observe streaky behavior and it's going to appear and feel like and to the observer will look like uh, momentum or hotness. And so it's very difficult to study. It's been attempted to be studied in basketball. There's some famous studies that look at it. But of course, ba- basketball is a team sport and individuals make decisions that there's no regularity. So um, looking ahead, what, what uh, Lionel Page did was to look particularly at tennis to see if he can create a situation for which it would be possible to control for external factors and measure an, a phenomenon like momentum. So let's go to the next clip. We want to test whether there is momentum in the fact that um, winning helps you win more, right? So you, you are in a competition and you, you start winning. Uh, does it change your probability to win the next whatever bat, the next uh, period, the next set uh, in the competition? So now, obviously, you know, I mean, if I was to do stats and I take the people winning one set in tennis and, 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 and I tell you that, well, the guy's who tend to win the first set, win also the second set, and you would not be very convinced because you'd, you'd be telling me, yeah, right, obviously, you know, Rafael Nadal wins the first set and he wins the second set yeah, right. just because he's Nadal. Yeah. So, so, what, so what you want to be able to do, is, which is very difficult, you want to be able to, to, to find a situation where somehow it is a fact of winning, which has a causal effect, but not because, but, but, but you strip out all the things which could be due of, to the um, individual um, characteristics, right. typically, which can be observed, like ranking, but also it could be unobserved. Because suppose, for instance, I tell you that I only pick people with uh, similar rankings. It could be that some guys, you know, are, are better on clay. Yeah. So if they win on clay for a given ranking, they win afterwards. Or maybe they are just like better on that day, right? So yeah. what I'm looking for is I'm looking for situations where it's almost as good as, as an experiment. So what we've done here is that uh, in this paper, we've taken a huge amount of sets of, of matches, which data is available on the web because uh, there's so much interest in tennis that people, uh, there's a huge amount of archive match on the web. So you can, you can, you can retrieve all this stuff from actual matches that existed. And we, we took our data set contains um, 300, more than 300,000 matches from men and 25 from women. There's much less. Uh, matches which are archived for women. And so what we're going to look for is situations where players can be considered almost as equal in the first set. So we didn't have a chance to to flesh it out. It's a full, long interview, and I encourage you to download the full episode of our show to hear the full interview and the full discussion. But what uh, Professor Page did was he looked at tiebreakers. So the tiebreakers, particularly long tiebreakers, ones that last at least 20 points, the presumption is is that this is a basis for forming a natural experiment. So when two players are in a long, long tiebreaker, they are, uh, to all intents and purposes, approximately equal in quality. And so you can see whether the act of winning that tiebreaker has any influence on the next set. And what they seem to be able to show is that it does, that there's an unlikely excess number of wins in the next set, the subsequent set, after a tiebreaker has been won. And they attribute that to the momentum effect and actually attribute that 
for it's it's really very noticeable in men. That's where they have most of the data. They actually attribute it to to testosterone, which is uh, and and the the adrenaline rush that comes with winning that makes you better in the subsequent competition after you've won. Anyway, it's a, it's a big discussion. There's some interesting articles. We actually talked about it in an earlier show. We talked about the same issue with judo. It was, it was actually a discussion that Shane found particularly curious and entertaining, but uh, it was really substantive academically, and maybe we'll get around to that in a later show. So let's now switch gears for our last two clips, Bill Connolly, and uh, he's now going to be talking a little bit about the greatest college football t- teams of all times. I don't even mean, mean greatest. It actually has an asterisk on, uh, on that, the best. He also wants to not necessarily just be the best teams, but also the most interesting for their time. I was always a Boise State fan. I was interested that you picked the 2010 season as compared to what I still to this day consider the greatest college football game ever played when they won on the, as you remember, forget the Statue of Liberty to win the game. You remember there was, as in your book, there was a hook and ladder play Mm -hmm. to get them to that. I still consider it the greatest college football game. Why didn't you pick that season as opposed to the 2010 Boise State season? You know, I think the 2010 team uh, attracted me more simply because, um, and it's funny to say this because, you know, they've gone undefeated twice and this wasn't either one, but 06, that was an underdog. Um, You know, they they weren't quite where they would end up in terms of depth and and athleticism and physicality. They were just a really good team and they used trick plays to win. That became kind of the Boise State model, this trick plays, trick trick plays, misdirection, et cetera. Well, four years later, um, they didn't need trick plays anymore. Uh, you know, they, they uh, beat uh, Virginia Tech that year in Landover, Maryland, uh, just beat them, just uh, made a big run and, and beat a good team. They beat Georgia the next year uh, by just running their offense and, and being so precise at it. And I think those teams, you know, 2010, Boise might have been the best team in the country, honestly. They lost one game uh, on the road to a really good, to the best Nevada team ever, uh, and they did it, you know, with uh, a couple of missed field goals by a very, very, very good field goal kicker. And so the fact that a team from, at Boy, uh, in Boise from Boise State could maybe have been the best team in the country and, and you know, in a playoff uh, environment, they could have uh, actually won the national title. I think that intrigues me more. They wouldn't have made a playoff because, A, the committee's never going to put a mid-major in the, the, the playoff, and, B, they lost the game. And so, um, you know, that, that, that um, you know, kind of changes the context, I guess, a little bit. But that team was truly awesome, uh, whereas those 16 was really good. But, uh, you know, they, they were still kind of using a little trickeration, and, and 2010 didn't need it. Trickeration. They needed the trickeration, and that's why they were not quite as good as the 2010 team. So there's a pretty cogent answer to Eric's question. Let's go to the next and final clip. Uh, We're talking about patterns in college football history and basically breaking down history into zones and discovering patterns. The pattern that I might have picked up on uh, going throughout this is that there are just there are periods where it all kind of aligned together for the powers, and then other periods where it all fell apart. And so the mid 30s, you know, after Alabama comes back, uh, you know, they win uh, in 1925, uh, they come back home. Uh, and and the South has decided, well, you know, we can be really good at football. Let's be really good at football. And so the Tennessees of the world, uh, certain t- uh, teams in this big 25-team Southern Conference appear to be a little more committed to playing good football, and they all join together, LSU, Ole Miss, Tennessee, Georgia, uh, Auburn, Alabama, et cetera. 
uh, and a couple stragglers in like Sewanee and, and, and Tulane and whatnot. But, um, you know, they, they still, in the 30s then, there was this period of ups and downs where Minnesota was about the only team that was really good every year. And, and it, was, it was kind of college football trying to figure out who was going to be good. But then after the war, it was Michigan and Notre Dame. Um, then in the 50s, you had a bunch of, of, of coaches retiring all around the same time uh, that had really won just most of the games of the 30s and 40s. And so Oklahoma was really the only stable entity, and you had ups and downs and a different national title every single year. Uh, in the 70s, everything coalesces where Ohio State, Oklahoma, Nebraska, Alabama, um, Penn State, and Notre Dame are tremendous every single year, and that's basically it. Uh, but that's a good, uh, you know, a high number of dominance. I would say maybe uh, if we looked at, if we were able to figure out how to study that just right, we might see that in the 2010s, kind of a repeat of what we saw in the 70s in that regard. Uh, the ruling class was a little bigger. But then the 1980s, early 80s were a total free for all, and Miami and Florida State became national powers in that time. Um, so th- I, I think there are up cycles and down cycles in that regard. Yeah, it's, so we- it's been one of the really interesting things. Well, I do encourage you to read the book by Bill Connolly, The 50 Best College Football Teams of All Time, where he delves into all these issues on a team-by-team basis. And that concludes another edition of the Wharton Moneyball post-game podcast. If you want to hear the full show, it's available for download on SoundCloud and on the Apple Store under Podcasts. Don't forget to check out Wharton Moneyball Live Wednesday mornings, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern Time on Sirius XM's Business Radio Channel 111. Please join us next week for another edition of the Wharton Moneyball post-game podcast. I'm Professor Adi Weiner of the Wharton School of Business, Department of Statistics. Until then, enjoy your sports, enjoy your statistics.